Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and new Let It Roll intern Ivan DeHaas conclude the Three Kings of Emo Rap series with a look at the Juice World documentary, Into the Abyss. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. And once again, we're welcoming back Let It Roll intern Ivan DeHaas to conclude our trilogy on the three kings of emo rap. Today, we're looking at Juice World, Into the Abyss, which is a documentary made for HBO Max, directed by Tommy Oliver. Ivan, welcome back to the show. Hey, Nate. Thanks again for having me on. And so Juice World, um, is he the most talented of the three, at least in the sense of being a tradition as a, as a rapper? Like he's the, a, a freestyle king, like one of the few rappers of this generation I've seen get respect from the old school lyrical rappers. Absolutely. I would say that, um, you know, from my own personal perceptions of him and from others, um, you know, based on not only clips from the Into the Abyss documentary, but from uh, clips that were always surfacing online um, during his career run and, you know, obviously years after his death, that was really one of his main uh, appeals for his raw talent, his ability to just kind of provide those almost stream of consciousness freestyles right off the top of his head. Yeah, and it, you know, it reminds me of Tupac Shakur, who famously recorded a whole double album the day he got out of prison. Um, you know, that kind of old school lyrical freestyler. But and not to not to knock Little Peep or <clears throat> Extension, who I think made very powerful music. They were just working, coming from a different place. They were not traditional lyrical rappers. And and Little Peep, I would say, is more like a, a, a an emo rocker who used trap beats really more than more than a, a lyrical rapper in the old school sense. But let's give a quick who, what, why, or who, what, when, where stuff about Juice World. Who was he? How did he get famous? How big did he get? And what happened to him? Well, I mean, Juice World's career in music uh, really just started out as a, um, a guy in a high school in Chicago um, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, they mentioned in the documentary, Juice recognized he was, you know, average at, you know, more or less everything involving, you know, sports and school related things that he did growing up. But the one thing that really personally stuck out to him and to other people that was exceptional uh, pertaining to his talents was always relevant to music. You know, he started, um, he learned uh, the piano from the age of four and um, also, you know, tried his hands at uh, playing the guitar, drums, and played the trumpet in school. But it was really during his sophomore year of high school that um, he focused his efforts within music on uh, making hip-hop and uh, putting it online. So, um, you know, around uh, the mid-2010s, 2014, 2015, um, he started posting songs on SoundCloud. 
out in his sophomore year of high school. And um, this, uh, you know, this online this online platform allowed him to catch the eye of an internet blog that also, um, you know, that also produced uh, music videos on YouTube. You know, it gave it gave uh, shed light usually on up and coming artists. And the uh, the name of the the channel and the blog was uh, Lyrical Lemonade. And um, the director for the music videos and one of the um, co-founders of Lyrical Lemonade, Cole Bennett, um, you know, the song All Girls Are the Same was really his first song that um, that gained popularity. And it was through Lyrical Lemonade, who, um, you know, basically promoted the song on their blog. And then uh, in early, you know, the next year, uh, Cole Bennett actually filmed a video for All Girls Are the Same. Name, you know, starring Juice World, and that video blew up on YouTube. While the song itself, you know, being released as a single, um, was getting plenty of numbers on streaming services. So that was really that was the start of Juice's um, what would be a meteoric rise to fame in a very short amount of time. I mean, by the end of 2018, he had a uh, a studio album out. Um, you know, had signed a three million dollar deal with Interscope, and was um, you know was touring around the United States and pretty much by by that point in time before 2019 even rolled around he had that he had that um that cemented fate as a as a rising star in the US who had, who's basically had a direct trajectory towards superstardom and from 2019 the uh you know the second album debut the collaboration with Atlanta rapper Future and um everything else after that that was more or less proven to be true uh Juice World reached a level of superstardom and um, fame and also commercial popularity that equaled many of the artists who had been releasing music well throughout the early 2010s, uh, the likes of The Weeknd and Drake, a lot of the the decade and lists pertaining to streaming saw Juice World's numbers in the span of really two or only two or three years of making officially released music, um, matching that of artists who had entire production teams behind him and, uh, you know, higher budgets, uh, they, he matched the popularity in such a short time and impacted the lives of millions of kids in a, you know, really heartfelt and impressive way. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's very impressive to me that, uh, and, and it was also a testament to the openness of the SoundCloud era. And, and what we've seen in the course of Let It Roll is there's these brief windows when independent artists, have a chance to grab new technologies and new means of distribution and reach mass audiences. And Juice World's a classic example of that. He recorded his first songs on his cell phone, uploaded them to SoundCloud. I presume he, he acquired beats off SoundCloud as well. And, and do you know the answer to that one? Uh, not off the top of my head. I do know he um, also caught the eye of Nick Mira through SoundCloud. And Nick Mira is one of the guys responsible for a lot of the signature sounds you hear on Goodbye and Good Riddance. A lot of the beats have a similar atmosphere to them. And Nick Mira was um, was someone who was uh, who Juice collaborated collabed with in 2017. Um, I believe Nick Mira saw his work on SoundCloud, though, and that's how they got together. I see. Yeah. So just a, a classic testament to the SoundCloud era. And also, I think when when comparing him to Little Peep and Extension, Little Peep died so young that he was pretty underground still. None of his, most of his bigger hits were posthumous. And Extension uh, achieved 
pretty big popularity, but Juice World was just on another level. Like you said, he was literally competing with Drake uh, and The Weeknd at, at the absolute top of the field. And then the documentary, of course, is is posthumous. And it's it's very interesting to compare him to Lil Peep and Extension because Lil Peep, it just became clear over the course of the documentary. He didn't have, con- he didn't have a, a, he couldn't close his doors. He could not kick people out of his apartment. He could not get rid of hangers on. And that ultimately uh, contributed to his death. Extension had massive uh, criminal uh behavior problems and and domestic violence problems that were inexorably dragging him into prison even had he lived but juice world it seems like had a much more supportive circle uh, you know he had a, he had a big circle but a coherent and professional circle and also a loving circle he had a had a life partner that he was married to and yet the drug problem in this documentary is just staggering i mean the percocets are just flying at all times was this known while he was alive i think from a perspective of his inner circle everyone pretty overtly acknowledged the fact that um a lot of the you know uh, codeine promethazine usage as well as the you know the percocet uh, usage within Juice's circle. That was known, but I don't think it was overtly acknowledged as an issue by too many people other than Ali Lottie, his, um, you know, his girlfriend and wife, uh, later wife, and uh, Juice himself, who um, in specific clips of the talk- documentary talks about some of the benefits that sobriety could offer with respect to being there for your family and um, also Juice's recalling in several places in the documentary how being on being on drugs so frequently so often and such such powerful drugs and such a high volume not only is it you know life-threatening and dangerous as as the documentary and really juice world's trajectory shows it's also it turns you into a different person juice was surrounded by people whom he cared about and whom he enjoyed and who supported him but I feel like that growing sense of emptiness inside that he talked about in a lot of his music and a lot of the a lot of the heartbreak, you know, not only romantically related things, but it was also due to the um, the the personality shifts from from such a large amount of drugs and um, you know his photographer, personal assistant, and um, you know a few of his label managers talk about not only um not only the issues they saw within juice pertaining to substance abuse themselves they talked about how you know through juice's you know his medium as as a rapper he was able to communicate the uh, the struggles he had with that and everyone was so impressed by the resulting art that came out of these the him rapping and singing about his his everyday struggles especially involving these substances Everyone was paid so much attention to the art and the impact it had that they they took their gaze off of the actual Jared Higgins with respect to what sort of impact would this have on him physically, you know, in terms of his actual body, in terms of being able to live longer. And I think that right there best reflects sort of the um, the dynamic with substances within within Juice World and his camp. 
Yeah, it's definitely a cautionary tale. But let's go ahead and hear some Juice World. This is All Girls Are the Same, the SoundCloud uh, song that broke him, broke him through and, and brought him to the big time. That's Juice World's All Girls Are the Same, his breakthrough single that he dropped on SoundCloud that led to his deal with Interscope Records and led to the to the Cole Bennett video that led to the Interscope deal. Um, one thing about Juice World that I found interesting, especially given his talents as a freestyle rapper, was this was not a, a he was not a hip hop native. His mother wouldn't let him listen to hip hop growing up, so he grew up a lot more on rap. I'm um, not rap on rock and heavy metal than he did on rap um and it and it definitely shows do you think that that's a core of why we see these three artists as constituting a subgenre on their own is that they had more influences from rock than say many trap artists that they're contemporary with i think from a vocal and sonic perspective um although definitely i'd say more so vocal in juice's case there's a definite um, influence within the genre, uh, the genre of rock, and um, you know, in, in some of the other cases like X uh, punk, um, and I think that definitely constitutes a certain recognition of these three stars, um, and you know, the these three the people behind them really um, as something that definitely deserves a certain removal from you know what we would consider uh, the likes of trap music. You know, a lot of other rap subgenres that are also equally as popular around this time have a distinctly different sound from um, from the the emo rap subgenre, and I think it's because of those influences on on Juice World's music. Although undeniably, in some of the uh, in some of the points of the documentary, he mentions how the likes of still Tupac, Biggie, Nas, and Public Enemy are um, are influences and in, in idols of his. Um, there's that, and that's obviously I think that's present in his approach to freestyles and you know also his music. Um, but there's still that element of you know genre parallel influence uh, that I think obviously goes beyond rap. And I think that's what distinguishes these three artists absolutely is that past musical influence. It's very important to identify and understand really. Yeah, and, and you hear, when you listen to his music, you hear him name-check John Lennon and Kurt Cobain as many times or more than any single hip-hop figure. So it, it's, it's uh, and I think that reflects his generation, that, that Nirvana and the Beatles seem to have penetrated into the Zoomer consciousness in a way that some of their contemporaries, say the Rolling Stones and Pearl Jam, just haven't, which is just interesting to see, and, and we could puzzle about for, for a long time. But one other thing I want to pull out from the documentary is that, his drug use, according to Juice World, started with the institutions he was in, that, that he didn't start out as a recreational drug user. He started out as a compulsory drug user because he had been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD, and he was on Adderall from the time he was in fifth grade, which is, again, also a very common phenomenon with this generation. Is that something you've seen in your personal life that the medication of kids that are diagnosed this way 
does it correlate to a, to later use of recreational drugs? I would say there have definitely been instances in my personal life and from my experience with people my age that um, that have been diagnosed with uh, the likes of ADD, ADHD, um, where when they're put on a medication from an early age, like juice was, I think he really hit the uh, hit the nail on the head with what he mentions in the documentary, how uh, medication in the in the context of, you know, there's there's something abnormal in terms of, you know, either your behavior or something cognitive. And you need to you need to take this in order to straighten it out and you know make yourself normal. I've seen that a lot with some of my friends and colleagues. And later on, you know, once you know, once we're in high school, college, whatnot, that has um, that has led to drug use, I think, on behalf of that being medicated from an early age. Um you know, situation. And what Juice mentions in the documentary was something that immediately personally resonated with me because it seems it seems very relevant to the circumstances of a lot of people I know where from a young age, and especially on behalf of, you know, their their parents, uh, you know, taking them for a diagnosis and then, you know, um, buying the prescription that they are, you know, for example, Adderall for ADD. Um, that in and of itself, I think normalizes that drug use from an early age. And, um, you know, it also sort of, sort of shows pretty soon after, I mean, juice was only in sixth grade when he, um, when he tried, when he started sipping lean for the first time. And shortly after that, it was, uh, it was trying Xanax using Xanax, which, you know, is, uh, is pretty deadly and addictive in and of itself. Um, but that pretty accurately shows how that normalization of reliance on drugs from an early age, I think, can have a pretty devastating effect, um, not even all that far down the line. I mean, by the time you're in your mid to late teenage years, it seems like it seems like turning to substances for the sake of like a, a mental or emotional solution or even physical um, is normal. Yeah, it's certainly widespread. And for those who didn't listen to our DJ Screw episode, lean is uh, a mix of soda pop and, and uh, codeine cough syrup. And opioids like that are especially dangerous if you mix them with drugs like Xanax, which is a, a drug class uh, called uh, benzodiazepines, which the two opiates and, and benzos just really shouldn't mix. And there was another temptation. Like there's an early scene in the movie where he's uh, uh, performing at a major festival, I think it's Flogna in late 2018, and he meets Tyler, the creator, who's you know a rap star from uh, the 2000s, 2010s era, and and you know Juice is very respectful, acknowledges his influence, and that seems to touch Tyler, the creator. He also meets um, I Love McConan, who will remember from the Little Peep documentary. McConan had had collaborated with Little Peep towards the end, and he seems very much uh, charmed by Juice World and impressed with his talent. But they have this conversation, and and I'll, I'll, it's time to cue. So let me cue my next song, and then when we come back, I'll talk about the other temptation of the 2010s that that Juice struggled with. But this is Lucid Dreams. This was the song that absolutely broke, broke Juice through to the mainstream. I think it was streamed about a gazillion billion times and massively popular on YouTube. This is uh, Juice World's Lucid Dreams.
And that was Juice World's Lucid Dreams, uh, the song that just absolutely broke him wide open and, and made him a mainstream figure. But there's a conversation with Ella McConnell, and, and, and it's a point in the movie and perhaps his life when it seemed like Juice was trying to clean up and that he's he's uh, his wife is especially pressuring him to, to stay away from the lean. He's trying to cut down the pills, but he feels like the vehicle for temptation, the thing that he most wants to get rid of, is his phone which he views as just a, a connection to temptation for people who are trying to you know, connect him with drugs and that he's fantasizing about having an iPod classic where he can just listen to music without being connected. How did that speak to you? Is that something that you feel like people in your generation are struggling with as well as, as drugs and general depression? I absolutely think so because having a phone for someone in Gen Z is without a doubt, a double-edged sword. Um, and the interesting part is, you know, my phone broke last week and I felt like I'd lost a limb because of all my two-factor authentication and, um, you know, bank account information and, you know, password stuff that was that I used my phone for. But aside from that, um, the fact that um, Juice recognizes sort of the, a lot of the obsessive compulsive habits that come with constantly having a phone and wanting to check it and um you know for example going on social media and then also contacting the um the you know the plugs for his uh for the various substances that his his team would get juice um i think that pretty that pretty effectively exemplifies sort of seeing the phone as something useful uh you know as a young person but at the same time something that just is a complete time sink and you know obviously poses a lot of potential connections to things that may not be all that beneficial for you, whether it's as, you know, trivial as wasting your time on, you know, reading and, you know, or playing or worrying about something that you don't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be spending your time on to more severe instances, which is, I think, perfectly emulated in or perfectly depicted in Juice's case, where that's his reliance for uh, the continuous supply of uh, Percocet and uh, and you know lean cough syrup, the cough syrup for the lean. Um, but I thought it was interesting that um, Juice mentioned kind of having a jailbroken iPod Touch in the documentary because um, I remember that was sort of the first desire as um, you know someone who's like 10, 11 year old, 10, 11 years old was not really to just have a fully functioning phone. But um, if I could have an iPod touch, that was like the first, the handheld, you know, LCD smart device that I, I wanted to have. And um, the chief reason for that was listening to music. And um, the cameraman in that scene points out to Juice that, hey, you know, if there's one thing your phone is good for, it's listening to music. And uh, I was absolutely on board with that. And I think Juice was too. That's why I mentioned the whole iPod touch thing. But um from a from a you know more vague perspective, a broader perspective, I would most definitely say that a lot of people my age have that same bifurcation of views um, or, or dichotomy of views on that phone. Is um, you know it's it's useful, um, but nonetheless we look at it as something that is ultimately detrimental to physical, mental, mental, emotional health. Um, yet I feel like there's a lot of people who just simply can't stop 
looking at him, can't put it down. And um, I don't know. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah, is dealing with multiple addictions, both uh, technological and chemical. And it, it, another thing that reminded me of other figures we've talked about in the Let It Roll series is is the way that um, I love McKinnon and and Cole Bennett both talk about Juice is that they view him as a special person with a special mission, and you know that's very much the kind of thing that John Lennon heard all the time and believed himself. And and Juice seemed to feel like his mission was to bring light to issues of mental health within the black community, that he felt that, that mental health was something that was very stigmatized in, in the black community, and he wanted to make it okay for people to admit they have problems so that they could get help. And it reminded me so much of John Lennon and Elvis Presley, both um, grappling with, you know, what do I do with this sudden fame and this mass audience? And all three of them concluded, I want to try to tell people positive messages. I mean, even Extension, whose personal life was such a disaster, felt that same compulsion to try to communicate positive, positive things. It seems to be, uh, you know, one of the best ways to respond to finding yourself in that situation and, and dealing with that magnitude of talent and success. But then there's another interesting part in, in, the, in the movie where Kid Leroy uh, has a major cameo all throughout the movie. And, and, um, Tri- Trippy Reds is manager and and had made the hookup, and and how do you see Kid Leroy in, in context of Juice World's career and and in context of the overall rap scene? Like, was this you know was he a free rider that that's hitching on, or or was he genuinely a, a talented contemporary that appear uh, musically of of Juice World? I see Kid Leroy, especially after watching the documentary, I see him now as a protege of Juice World's. And um, before that, before I really knew the impact that Juice had, not only on the Kid Leroy, but also himself personally, but on his career, as in um, part of Leroy's ascension to mainstream fame in the 2020s and his, um, you know, his fan base of, of, uh, of young kids uh, this time is the fact that he was able to record, meet with, and record music with Juice World, um, you know, their first collaboration, Go, was released in the wake of Juice World's death. And um, I didn't necessarily get the sense that um, Kid Leroy was a, a hanger on like we, like the multitude of people that we saw in the Little Pete documentary, but it seemed like he was an up and coming artist from Australia who was pretty was not very well known before before 2019 really and i think that collaboration with juice world him meeting uh his you know him and his production team and sort of the resulting connections leroy gained from that allowed him to use that that foothold that he got with you know meeting with and collaborating with juice world to grow his own platform and you know gain a a higher level of fame, uh, especially after Juice's death. Not to say that Juice's death sparked fame itself for the Kid Leroy, but I think having that posthumous feature and then uh, posthumous feature with Juice um, and then other other recorded music as well, because Juice, you know, had pretty much an entire vault's worth of unreleased music at the time of his death. Um, I think that definitely helped Leroy's career. I saw him uh, not necessarily as an industry plant, 
but as um, as someone who definitely gained a lot of the necessary connections within the industry with uh, with not only certain artists, but but key uh, managerial figures as well. That is definitely what helped Leroy's ascension to commercial fame in the in the latter decade. Yeah. Another thing I noticed about and this was true in all three of, of the movies, and I find it to be kind of heartening having been telling this let it roll story, which is so many ways the story of American music is the story of the relationship of African-Americans and Anglo-Americans uh, and, and Jewish Americans and, and other ethnicities. But it seems like in the modern era, I was heartened to see that all of these guys had integrated posses, that their, their core people were very multiracial. And yet the African-American figures seemed to have their hands on the till from a business perspective, or at least we're not getting screwed over. It wasn't a patron, a paternal system like you might've seen with chess records and Chuck Berry in the fifties, or, you know, even worse, the way that somebody like Burt Williams was treated in the 19 teens or the way Louis Armstrong was treated in the twenties and thirties. So that's heartening to see. And, and I mean, do you think that's me being naive and idealistic, or do you think that things are actually somewhat improving as far as race relations amongst zoomers? I, I think that there's definitely more of a sense of of integration and racial diversity, um, not only within the dynamics of the music industry that we've seen in all of with, with in the case of all these artists and obviously uh, multitudes more currently, but also within sort of the Gen Z community and uh, younger generations as well. Um, not only, you know, from my own life experiences, but also from the experiences of others that I've, you know, I've, when I've been talking with people, um, I think there's definitely a heightened sense of, of general, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily, someone's ethnicity doesn't necessarily dictate, um, you know, whether or not, um, who, who they hang out with, I think at this point from a young age, a lot of times it's proximity based. And, um, I think that's pretty evident with, uh, with juice world as well. Um, because a lot of the artists that he first collaborates with are, um, artists from Chicago or not collaborates with, but artists that he, um, artists that basically juice world first became known to, if that makes any sense. Um, the yeah. likes of G Herbo and um, and Lil Bibby, who signed him to uh, Gray A Productions uh, before he got signed to Interscope. But um, that's just an example of it's more so, I think, an instance of proximity that determines sort of the formation of of not only groups of friends, but also these these music entourages. And a lot of time, um, the ethnicity of of everyone is more or less indeterminate. Which is, um, you know, which is good that that's not a considering factor in terms of, oh, should, is this person, you know, part of our group? It's, um, it's more so awful. Also, what they bring to the table um, that determines that, you know, that that, um, you know, collective molding with with like a group of people in general. And I think that's obviously present in the Juice World documentary. All right, and let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll we'll talk more about the magnitude of success that Juice World experienced and some of his uh, adventures with lifestyles of the rich and famous. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So one of the things I think the documentary does a really good job of is emphasizing the magnitude of his popularity. And it seems like virtually every time Juice World uh, performs a song in the movie, they uh, list the numbers of streams, you know, plays on Spotify and other streaming services, as well as the number of YouTube plays. And we're talking hundreds of millions of streams, even billions of streams sometimes. Now, when they say something's been streamed a billion times that doesn't mean a billion people listen to it that's more like say 10 million people listening to it a few hundred times each is that a correct assumption i would say more or less or um you know somewhere between 10 million listening 100 times 100 million listening 10 times it really depends on you know how much of a fan they are juice's music how much they like a particular song but it's almost never a billion separate people um it's more so you know, people who are aware of Juice World are a known are known not maybe not fan of his, but are at least aware of his music, and they you know listen to his songs a few times. That's what really generates those streaming numbers. Yeah, and it's also very global. Is that correct? I would definitely say so. Um, I think a lot of the most streamed artists right now, and the artists that have break, broken the most records with respect to streaming history. And uh, just the, the sheer volume of the numbers uh, have reached throughout a lot of the um, you know most populated countries and uh, countries where you know streaming services uh, and you know just having the likes of Apple Music, Tidal, Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, having those as just sort of a, a proxemic way of enjoying media is commonplace. Uh, so you know U.S., Europe, a lot of places in Southeast Asia. Um, a lot of places in Central and South America, um, well, pretty much the world over at this point, but um, definitely an international, um, a more international scene when you're such a uh, highly streamed artist. The, uh, the streams become a lot more global from a multitude of different areas. And along with those streams uh, came a lot of money. And so we see Juice, you know, buying um, dirt bikes and playing with 
pretty cool lightsaber toys. But they, the, you know, several of the associates mentioned that he really doesn't spend his money that crazy. But one thing that, that's kind of ominous is that there's this conversation about him wanting to buy a private jet. And one of the people that he's with is, is explaining to him how much more economical it is just to lease a private jet or rent a private jet. And ultimately, that's going to come back to haunt Juice World in a really tragic sense. But what was your take on Juice World's materialism? I mean, did he seem especially materialistic for somebody that was making this kind of money? Or did it seem like he had it kind of under control, at least the acquisitions and the materialism? I think it's it depicted on Juice's behalf about an average amount of you know, if I if I had the money that Juice was getting from the uh, not only from the record deal, but just from the global attention by the end of 2018 and into 2019, I would say he about met but didn't necessarily exceed expectations with respect to his material wealth. Granted, you know, there are the scenes with his really fancy uh, gated home in Los Angeles the numerous dirt bikes and four-wheelers that he had, as well as, you know, you mentioned the lightsabers. Um, this seems like a lot of things that, you know, like your average teenager, if they had a lot of money or, you know, a young guy uh, would, re- would really enjoy having. Um, but it didn't necessarily seem to dominate a, a good portion of the documentary um, granted, there was that one scene with the private jet you mentioned where a, uh, you know, a G5 Gulfstream costs 20, 30 million dollars and and juices, you know, egging on someone off camera, one of his team about how, oh, you know, I found this 2003 G5 for a uh, for a decent price. But it didn't seem like juice was an extremely material person. Um, a lot of the scenes that and a, a lot of that is because that's sort of superseded in a way uh, that sense of materialism by the more prominently placed instances of substance abuse that we talked about. And I think that's a factor playing into it is the the emphasis on material wealth in terms of the way it was actually presented and what he was, you know, actually buying, you know, that was physical, I feel like manifested itself a lot less than the likes of of buying drugs and the kind of the prevalence of them in every in every recorded scene uh, from the documentary. At least that was my own personal impression of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's maybe two scenes where he's sort of acknowledging that he has a problem or saying he wants to do less of them. Uh, there's some mention from Allie of how she's banned lean from the house and is trying to cut you know the the coding costs up out of his life, but then his you know, personal assistants talking about how he would sneak the lean to juice. And it reminded me so much of Elvis and Dr. Nick. Dr. Nick was a Greek doctor who kind of became the scapegoat for Elvis Presley's death. But many people feel like Dr. Nick was actually kind of the gatekeeper who was limiting the amount of drug abuse that Elvis could do. And and it seemed like his assistants saw themselves in that same capacity where juice would ask for four ounces of lean to be poured into a Sprite and they would just give him one ounce, which I mean, four ounces of coating and in, in a soft drink is that's just Herculean amounts. And if you're mixing that with Xanax or something, you're really playing with your own life. And as obviously it, it came to on juice. But the other thing that reminded me of Elvis was that he talks about this uh, persistent sense of unreality and, and that he acknowledges this is happening, but at the same time, he, he, 
I think it's I love McCunnan that he he says, you know, I feel like I could just wake up and it's all going to be a dream. And that was exactly what Elvis Presley and one of the reasons Elvis Presley stuck with the infamous Colonel Tom Parker is he felt that Tom Parker was the one who made it real, who made it happen. And that if you lost Tom Parker, you would lose everything. But let's go ahead and hear another one from Juice World. This is Robbery. She told me put my heart in the bag and nobody gets hurt. Now I'm running from your love. I'm not fast, so I'm making it worse. Now I'm digging up a grave for my past. I'm a whole different person. It's a gift and a curse. And that was robbery from Juice World. And why did you just like this particular track? This track actually brings me back to the days of senior year when um, this was probably the one song out of all the songs that we've we've heard in these three uh, Kings of Emo rap episodes that um, everyone around me really loved. And so many of my friends that I wouldn't expect to be fans of Juice World were playing his music in the car we were driving to go get lunch during our off-campus lunch breaks, and um, Robbery was the one song that was sort of, um, it was an anthem, really, that I think everyone knew the lyrics to, and no matter who it was, they'd sing along when, it, when someone would put it on the aux. And, um, and also, it's just, uh, it's one of my personal favorite Juice World songs. In the, you know, in the years after high school, my, my taste sort of deviated from a lot of the artists I was listening to at the time who would be uh, classified as emo rap or emo rap, rap parallel like Juice and Lil Uzi Vert and Tentacion. But um, Robbery was really the almost like the nadir of that era of my personal life and for the lives of my friends where uh, we enjoyed that music. And it was directly prior to Juice's death as well, which was obviously very jarring uh, amongst my generation. Yeah, no, I, I got to, you know, um, I feel guilty for having brought Zoomers into the world almost because of the world you guys are inheriting. And the and it struck me before, and I think I mentioned one of these earlier episodes, but the emotional tone of so much of this music and not just these guys, but, you know, even Billie Eilish, uh, you, you know, even here at Katy Perry or Taylor Swift, sometimes there's just this overtone of despair that makes perfect logical sense when you look at the condition of the world but there's this one line from robbery that i thought was really clever i wanted to share and she they said she told me to put my heart in the bag and nobody gets hurt i just thought that was a great metaphor for a, a great love song and i can't believe nobody has done this before i mean how did irving berlin not not think uh to compare love to to armed robbery um it, it just it's i don't know I, I i i thought that one was a really clever clever lyric Absolutely. And, yeah, and and I can see where it would would have meant so much uh, to to kids in your generation. It's it's um, and and that's the thing. It's like it's like these these people are really speaking for a generation, and it's so odd to me because I associate this kind of depressive music with people like Sid Barrett after he had been kicked out of Pink Floyd, or Alex Chilton uh, as he's making Big Star's last album, or Nick Drake who you know, infamously sold maybe 600 records while he was alive and, and, and ODs and then becomes a legend. But this stuff is now in the mainstream. And I think it behooves everybody to pay attention to, to what, what kids are listening to and what is the mood of, of this generation. And it's just, uh, <laughs> it's this, 
<laughs> not pretty. Uh, you know, and the music is pretty. The music is beautiful. But what's being expressed is very sad and very concerning. But then the rest of the movie, it just continues. This momentum keeps going. And at one point, Juice talks about how he hasn't slept in four days. And for a guy who's drinking lean and and taking Percocet, how on earth is he staying up this long? It's not is was he also doing cocaine or do we have any idea of, of the kind of chemical mix or was he just really working that hard and had that much endurance to go that hard? Because when he talks about his schedule, I mean, you know, four days straight, traveling the country, hitting radio stations, doing in-persons, jumping into the studio and dropping lots of tracks. Like you said, he had vaults of tracks. They they show him at the radio station doing multiple lyrics to the same beats. They said that, you know, when he was in a studio, he would frequently drop five complete different sets of verses and, and choruses to the same beat. I mean, you know, no, it's no wonder he's been a posthumous gold mine. It, it, it's incredible the amount of stuff he put out. But do you feel like, like with Avicii, say, the 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 EDM producer who passed away in 2018? It was pretty clear from the documentary that he was sort of being, I wouldn't say deliberately worked to death by his management, but that there was very little concern for his health and safety on the part of his management who just wanted him out there playing shows and making money. Do you feel like Juice was being pushed into this level of creativity or do you feel like he was driven internally? From my perspective of a lot of the scenes on the documentary, of Juice in the studio uh, with members of his team and with different producers like a DJ Scheme, Rex Kudo, Nick Nira, obviously. Um, you know, that was a big one. It seems like Juice really is the driving force behind his own desire to, you know, we see uh, to keep recording. I remember in multiple scenes, Juice is basically in the, you know, in the studio, he seems, you know, practically sort of disassociative. And he's next to the mixing engineer or the, um, you know, one of the producers. And then all of a sudden he'll just sit up and say, okay, let's do one more track. Or uh, can you put on another beat for me? Like I'm going to do some more verses. And um, I made particular note of that because uh, it almost always caught me off guard. It seemed like he was at one, in one instance, a really low energy um, person who didn't really seem grounded in his reality, reality. And then, the next instant he would sit up and really seem to want to do uh, a verse. And I think part of it was definitely his, his label head, Lil Bibby, at the very end of the documentary um, mentions that he always thought that Juice would, he never doubted Juice in terms of his ability to blow up and go commercial. So there was no doubt that the likes of, um, of G Money and Lil Bibby, who are the, you know, the co-founders of Grade A Productions, the first the first uh, label that the collective that signs Juice World in 2018, uh, 2017, there was no doubt that they encouraged him to to perform and to not only to perform, but to record music on a consistent basis. But Juice seems like one of those artists that was really driven by his own desire to spread awareness about mental health, especially anxiety in the black community like he talks about. Um, and then also the sort of impact that he has on the kids, especially shown in the scene with the youth outreach programs. All of that, I think, really added fuel to the fire that um, that was that inspiration to make more music for Juice. 
Um, and that was something that was really admirable about him was not only could he, you know, instantaneously, you know, pull off a freestyle off the top of his head like he does in a couple of the different um, radio shows and interviews that are shown in the documentary. Uh, he's also inspired to do it. I feel like mainly of his own volition because of the the catharsis and the um, the the relief it gives himself with with performing music. It seems like that was one of the central points of the documentary was that Juice, you know, Jared Higgins was always someone who really enjoyed music and recognized his talent at it. And that was what kept inspiring him to, you know, do five verses at once or rap over nine different um, beats uh, because he really understood his passion and he understood his knack for it. And even, even with all the, uh, you know, issues with substance abuse, uh, especially the depressants and the, um, you know, just all the different ones that didn't really, um, that hindered it less than I thought it would because of Juice's own desires to really, um, you know, go his upward trajectory as an artist was, I think, inspiring to himself as well. And let's go ahead and hear our last song. This is Bandit by Juice World. That's Juice World's Juice World's Bandit. And Ivan, why did you pick this one? I picked this one because this was the last well, not only alongside Bandit uh Robbery was it one of the songs that I heard almost every day in the car with my friends, but um it was also the last song released while Juice was still alive um, that really made an impact. It was uh, it peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. And um, and also, I think the NBA Young Boy collab was a, a pretty landmark uh, collaboration with respect to different uh, different areas of interest within hip hop, uh, because NBA Young Boy has a cult following of its own as well. Um, and tell but us I about think, NBA Youngboy and, and what school of hip-hop he comes from and, and how it differs from that sort of emo rap school that Juice World was rapping. Well, NBA Youngboy is from Louisiana, I believe. And from my own perspective, he encompasses this sort of uh, deep south, um, you know, modern neo-trap music with a, um, a pretty unique ap- approach to, um, you know, not only not only cadences, but um, but also subject matter. The the main thing I think everyone uh, you know distinguishes Young Boy for is his diehard fan base of um, of people who think his music is really good. And a lot of that is because of the mass of people who don't necessarily like his music. Um, but it's a lot more um, it's a lot more hard and rhythm driven than. A subgenre like, for example, emo rap or um, or some other alternative forms of hip hop, and I feel like NBA YoungBoy is a little bit more conventional, but um, but has a raw appeal. I think that then that's what cultivates his fan base, and I think the hard hitting nature of this track it's a bit different from a lot of the other Juice World songs we've heard. Um, that really that really shines here, and um, Juice does as well. It's an interesting molding of um, styles in this particular track. Yeah, and it really kind of makes you 
it's poignant because you makes you wonder what could have happened and the kind of collaborations that Juice World could have gone on and the, and the kind of influences he could have absorbed. And would you say it's fair to say that NBA Young Boys fan base is and Posse and crew even are more purely African American than than the emo rappers and that maybe it's more of a class difference that NBA young boy kind of represents the black working class and even underclass, whereas Juice World and Extension and Lil Peep kind of represented uh, a more integrated middle class. Uh, I would say so, although I have a relatively limited knowledge of NBA young boy myself, but from- Which is telling in from, itself. And you're correct about that. So, you know, I would say Generally, uh, yes, but um, I also think the the likes of X and Juice World had um, a much larger reach in general. However, I think their their uh, their issues addressing the stigma of mental health was a little bit more was a little bit more generalized. And then also, I feel like a lot of the the middle class and a lot of you know a lot of white kids listening to emo rap, um, I feel like resonated with those those like internal struggles um that's that's really what brought such the variety of fans from different backgrounds from different from different classes areas of the world and then the video takes sort of an ominous turn towards the end as it as it uh there's more and more shots of juice taking more and more pills i mean at one point he he sticks his tongue out i think there's like seven or eight percocets on his tongue he's he's pressing his his handlers to give him you know like I said, a, a can of Sprite that's a quarter lean or a third lean, uh, you know, just crazy dosage. But then then it's always ominous when you're watching a, a documentary or reading a book and suddenly they start talking about the day-to-day, like the minute-by-minute activities on a particular day. You almost always know when a day is documented that well that something horrible happened. And sure enough, Juice ends up leasing a plane, rents a private plane, he and his entourage are like six hours late getting to the plane. The pilot's unhappy. Turns out the pilot calls the police. The police are waiting for him when they land in Chicago. What happens when they land and the police are waiting for him? Basically, everything just blows to smithereens. Um, when they land, they see the constables and sheriff's car outside. Um, uh, what's it called? Juice's head of security talks about uh, seeing the the cops and not really thinking much of it because um, you know Henry Dean, his head of uh, security, is asking the pilots about you know what's going on when he sees the cop cars. Um, they don't really say that anything is wrong in response, uh, even though the security is sort of he's concerned. Um, although it's pretty normal to have that police escort um, uh, from what they mentioned in the um, in the documentary from early from earlier uh, tours and, and shows. There's even you know, a scene of uh, a couple police uh, in the backstage at Camp Flognaw. Um, but in this case, it's for, you know, it's for an arrest, it's for apprehending people. Uh, so when they land, Juice starts having a seizure and um, it's basically a mixture of, of lean and, and Percocet and they find a whole myriad of things in the toxicology report in the aftermath that they show from one of the news clips covering Juice's, uh, Juice's death that day, spoiler alert. But um, a lot of people like the Kid Leroy and uh, Juice's managers are, uh, one of Juice's managers is on that flight. Uh, Juice starts seizing, um, you know, goes into shock and 
you know, everyone is really concerned um, talking about getting him to the hospital. But I remember the kid Leroy talks about um, the seizure as if it were one thing and then talks about the blood coming out of Juice's nose and mouth in that same moment as if it were a, a whole other like, a you know, a whole new level of crisis. And that's when everyone he mentions, that's when everybody started freaking out. Um, Juice called out for Allie right before going into shock. Um, the cops come on or the you know when they when the the plane you know door opens the cops arrest everybody except for Allie and um you know keep saying juice world's all right they try and get him to the hospital but they don't the the police nor um nor you know any anybody else really acts quickly enough to get juice out of there to save him and um and he and he passes away after having that seizure and they find a you know the likes of uh, THC morphine hydro and oxycodone, um, as well as promethazine, codeine. And it's just, it is crazy that one day of, um, you know, being arrested, uh, the entire team being arrested, right, as Juice is going into shock. On top of the fact that they found like 70 pounds of weed and three firearms, six bottles of codeine in their luggage around that time, which revealed kind of the basis for why they were apprehending everyone. But um, still, really everything just everything just blows up in in juice and his team's face at once and it results in the death of juice world as well yeah and i think it's 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 especially stressful to me to to just my familiarity with police in this country having no concern for the life of somebody um presumably just because they had marked him as a a quote-unquote bad guy since they were there to search the plane and ended up uh, you know, finding, um, you know, contraband and making arrests. But it's just so maddening. Um, had this been Kid Rock or somebody like that, the, I do not think the police would have just watched them die like that. And it, it, it it's kind of back to the endless American tragedy that somebody like Juice World, as famous as he was, as beloved as he was by so many people, and yet you know, push comes to shove, the police don't care and watch him die. And, and you know, again, given the amount of, of drugs and the mix of drugs in the system, maybe there was nothing that could have been done. And his own, uh, you know, entourage, multiple people say, you know, yeah, listen to his songs. I mean, he, little baby, his label head said, you know, he, he, he cites the number that he says he wanted to die over 30 times in his songs. And that, Little baby says that, you know, since he was freelancing, it's coming right off of his head and, and presumably, you know, spoke from his heart so that they think that there was a, a suicidal drive there as well. But there was um, something else that I think it was Cole Bennett said that, you know, that he was sort of taking the sunny side up view that that Juice World's legacy that any time right now there are people listening to Juice World, there are thousands or millions of people right this second as we speak as you listen listening to juice world and he seems to think that you know as long as people exist people will be listening to juice world i tend to believe that as long as spotify exists as long as these streaming services exist people will be listening to juice world i just wish i was more confident that we were going to have the energy resources and the internet connections to, to share this music but what do you feel about the whole nature of musical immortality is it worth um 
you know, is it a fair trade-off to, to shorten your life that much to only get 21 years on Earth if that means that people are going to be listening to your music as long as we can see, you know, for the any visible time horizon, or is it just a waste and a tragedy? It's a difficult question because I definitely think in Juice's case, this immortal superstardom was definitely um, the propulsion of it was heightened in the wake of his death. That's when really all eyes flocked to Juice World. That you know, if someone wasn't listening to him before, they were now, especially in the wake of his death. Um, I'm basically I'm trying to classify Juice World as when he was alive, he was uh, someone who was was considered, you know, in the in the spotlight, you know, in the, in the form of regular stardom, but wasn't necessarily immortalized. I think I, I looked at him as another rapper who was talented and had a large fan base, had commercial success, was likely on his way up. But um, but it was really, I think, that that death that basically solidified him as one of the most streamed artists of the 2010s. Um, don't get me wrong. I think, I think that, you know, he had a very uh, emotionally dedicated fan base as, as have all three of these artists that we've covered in the three Kings of emo rap series. Um, they've all been, they've all exhibited that, um, very loyal fan bases, but, um, I don't necessarily know that that immortalization was worth it. I think the, that was one of the most haunting parts of not only Juice's repeated references in his songs to not making it past 21, but also the fate of him, Little Peep, and Tentacion occurring at that age of 21 years old or 20, which is my age. And when I think about it from that perspective, that I am the, you know, I'm the same age as all these artists were more or less when they passed away, um, I don't think that that reverence, that immortalization is really worth cutting short the lives of people who would have the opportunity to change so many more lives if they were if they were still alive necessarily and continue to like actively influence the um, the output of their music, um, you know, shaping the world as they would want it to be. Yep, I think that's a fair assessment. And so, Ivan, it's been a pleasure. My guest has been Ivan DeHaas, the new intern for Let It Roll, and uh, we've wrapped up the Three Kings of Emo Rap series. And one last question. With the death of Juice World, was that kind of a death blow for the emo rap movement? Has anybody stepped up to kind of carry the torch, or has time passed on? I really don't think there has been anybody within the vein of emo rap in the time since Juice World's death that has shown a similar degree of popularity or influence. Uh, that's not to say that the genre isn't necessarily dead, but I definitely think with respect to, um, you know, the, the commercial perspective, so to speak, it has shifted, the spotlight has shifted off of this niche uh, sonic alternative to, uh, to regular hip hop and, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. But for now, I think uh, the emo rap scene is not really having that spotlight shown on it as it was when Juice World was alive.
And that's why we're covering it, because we do music history on Let It Roll. And, and so it's kind of sad to consign these young kids and this movement into history. But I think emo rap was a movement that had its day in the 2010s. And Ivan DeHaas, thanks so much for coming on and telling us about it. Thank you for having me, Nate. It was great. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at literalpodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Kim Mack to discuss 90s alt metal group Living Color. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.